0: And we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. This is going to be an incredible episode, which was kind of a surprise for me, because the topic for today is out-of-body experiences, astral projection. Uh, And I didn't expect to do an episode on that, but... I got a hold of Thomas Campbell, who I initially wanted to do an episode on his theory that we live in a virtual reality simulation. So if that isn't incredible enough, it turns out that in his background, he was actually one of two scientists who worked with the Monroe Institute quantifying, creating experiments, designing the technical uh, gadgets and wizardry to quantify mathematically and scientifically out-of-body experiences. And I have been abs- borderline obsessed with the Monroe Institute, Robert Monroe, um, out of body experiences, astral projection. So I could not pass up the opportunity to ask him to talk about that for a little bit because he was a quintessential element in kind of developing all of this. And I had no idea. So that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, I'm very excited about this. And then this is going to be a rare two-parter because the next episode, we're going to talk about um, Thomas Campbell's belief that we live in a virtual reality simulation. Uh, so this is this is a lot of heavy stuff, but I think you're going to find it, uh, hopefully, as interesting as I do. So let's get right into this. Welcome to the show, Mr. Campbell. So you have a really cool background Because you worked for 30 years in Army Intelligence?
1: Uh, No. I started off my first job in Army Technical Intelligence. That was early, very early 70s. And I worked there for about uh, 11 years. And after 11 years, I moved on from uh, intelligence to being a uh, contractor um, for um, various... um, missile defense organizations. Uh, I did that for some years and then I moved to, uh, working for a bunch of other, uh, contractors also doing DOD, uh, contracts. Like I worked for Boeing, I worked for NASA. Um, I, I worked for other, uh, you know, several other companies as a contractor, you go where the contracts are. So you sure. end up working for a whole host of of companies
0: right now did you uh, it can you talk about your work or is it classified that kind of stuff
1: well the work I did for Intel sure I can talk about it in general it's pretty old by now right. but uh, <laughs> yeah. mostly mostly it was classified everything I did was pretty much classified but that doesn't mean I can't talk about it uh, you know in general terms
0: sure um, did and you worked in the space and missile defense agency as well right
1: yeah I work for the uh, uh, Space and Missile Defense Agency, and then for uh, Missile, um, was it at, uh, Missile Defense
0: Agency, MDA. It's pretty crazy. I mean, because what I love about your work, because um, I have been, well, as I started doing research, because I first heard about this when you were talking with Linda Moulton about the idea that we live in a virtual reality simulation. Uh, and it kind of blew my mind. I was like, whoa, that's crazy when you think about it. And so I started researching you, and I I had no idea. I've been weirdly fascinated with out-of-body experiences and astral projection and all that stuff. And I I read Journeys Out of the Body uh, a long time ago, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And I've been fascinated with Robert Monroe. And then when I saw that you had worked with him, um, it lent a lot of credence, not only to, to that phenomenon, but also to, to your work and, you know, the, the conclusion you came to about living in a virtual reality simulation, because you had such a solid scientific background, um, you know, I know you're not kidding me, you know, I know you, I know you know what you're talking about is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I'm, I'm unusual in that way. Uh, I got out of graduate school, and I took this job with Army Technical Intelligence, and Within months, I also kind of took the job with Bob Monroe uh, doing conscious research. So my career in physics, which was my uh, career that actually paid the bills, and my career in uh, consciousness, which was one that I uh, volunteered, both started about the same time. So hmm. I've got about you know 40 years in both. So I'm wow. a professional physicist, and I've got about as many years, the same 40 years or so, in, uh, in uh, consciousness research. So. It's a dual career. Now with Bob Monroe, I was only meeting with Bob about 20 hours a week instead of 40. I was putting in at the at the um, what was then called the foreign science and technology center. But um, so it was more of a halftime job. But then I worked on it a lot in my own, you know, when I was not in anybody's office, when I was lying in bed and should have been sleeping so I could come up rested for the next day. I was practicing. So I got that, those 20 hours actually swell up and probably uh, closer to, you know, like 30 hours a week. Wow.
0: That, I mean, that's, that's intense. I mean, so these, these two career paths kind of were in line. They were parallel with each other. Yes. Wow. Yes. I think you're uniquely qualified uh, for a lot of the stuff you talk about, because I don't think anyone else can kind of really say that. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think you might be unique in that respect.
1: Right. And it wasn't something I did for a little while you know, and then, uh, stopped. It's something that, uh, both of those, um, both of those careers, I guess if I stopped either one of them, it was the physics one. You know, I eventually <laughs> did retire. I'm, I'm going on 74 years old. So wow. I, did, I did eventually retire uh-huh. and I don't do uh, physics as a career anymore, but I'm still, uh, you know, up to my eyebrows and, uh, developing, um, uh, you know, consciousness, um, uh, and, um, uh, Scientific theory from that understanding of consciousness. So that that career in consciousness actually turned out to be the longer one
0: Wow Now now because these kind of went parallel uh, and they're so very different um, What got you interested in the um, consciousness aspect of this? How did you get started with that?
1: well, I got started with it um, I guess initially when I was a um, in graduate school working on my PhD I saw a sign on the door of the physics department that said, learn to meditate, free seminar, or free introduction seminar, learn to meditate, and then it listed some attributes that you would get from your meditation. And one of them said, you can get by with less sleep. And mm-hmm. that rang my bell. <laughs> right, graduate, yeah. graduate students always need to you know, get by on less sleep, sure. particularly if you're in physics and you're working at some big, big machine. You know, I was at a big Van de Graaff accelerator machine and when those machines are running, taking data, you don't turn it off and say, I'm tired. I'll come back in the morning. You know, when right. they're running, you, you stay with them 24-7 until, uh, you know, you get to the end of your experiment. So I thought that would be nifty. So I, I um, paid my $25 and was initiated into Transcendental Meditation, which was a special student rate, learned how to meditate. And within about three months, I found out that I could debug my computer code in an altered state of consciousness much more quickly and accurately than I could if I were actually awake looking at the computer code. So that just opened up my mind and told me that what I thought was reality was only a subset and that reality had to be bigger than that. So then I go on from graduate school and I get this job and within a few months of my first job with the Foreign Science Technology Center, my boss throws Bob Monroe's book at me and says, read this and tell me what you think about it. So that's the first I had heard of Bob Monroe. You know, I read the book and told my boss, well, you know, who knows? Is this guy, you know, if he's telling the truth, then wow, there's a whole nother part of reality that he's tapped into that none of the rest of us know about. That would be big because if you're a physicist like me, what you do is you try to model reality. The whole idea is to understand reality and how it works. And here was this potential. There was a whole lot more reality than I thought. And I knew that from my TM that that was true. So that had my interest peaked. Then my boss found, finds out that Bob Monroe lived only about a 40 minute drive from you know where we lived. So we made an appointment, went out to see him. Bob had just built a lab, had no idea what to do with it, didn't have anybody to work on it, didn't have any equipment in it. He just built it, kind of a build it and they will come. Sort of arrangement, so there I was. And I volunteered, and he accepted, and that's how I started working with Bob Monroe.
0: Wow. It
1: was just out of the blue, but it was because I was interested. My idea was that this may just turn out to be all baloney, but if it isn't, then it will be an important learning opportunity to find out about this, this larger reality that allows me to debug computer code. And, uh, you know, that the meditation takes place in. So that was what got me interested. It was just, uh, I'm a physicist. I want to know, I want to know how the world works. And this was a piece of the world that I knew was real from my own experience, but I had no idea how to approach it or what to do with it or anything else. Well, Bob then taught myself and a guy that was with me, Dennis, he worked same place I did. He uh, was an electrical engineer So we started building equipment for Bob and and getting his lab prepared and doing experiments using ourselves basically as the guinea pigs. And he taught us the deal was we would do that for him if he teach us about out of body, because we knew if it wasn't our experience, it really wasn't going to be our truth either. So he agreed. And in, say, a year and a half, Dennis and I were going out of body on demand whenever we wanted to. So at that point, I could use that access to the non-physical to start doing physics in the non-physical. In other words, I could, you know, Bob had us doing only things that were evidential because he knew that we didn't really believe it. We needed to find out for ourselves. So he had us doing uh, remote viewing of many sorts, uh, going into the future, looking at headlines in newspapers that were going to show up two weeks later. healing, all sorts of, of uh, kind of paranormal things, things that would, that would give, you pers- give us personal experience that the larger reality did exist, was functional, and it did have properties that you could measure and use. Well, once I was able to go out of body on demand whenever I wanted to, and I could do it precisely so that I'd end up in exactly the same state, I could go there, let's say, uh, do a remote view, but change a variable. Approach it from a little different way and see what difference that made and then change, change it again a little more and see what difference that made. And then change a different variable. So, you know, 35 years later of doing research in the non physical, I had an idea that I thought how it worked because I had been, you know, looking at the details of, you know, what are all the variables that, that, uh, that could make a difference and isolating the ones that made difference and finding out why they make a difference. And I started making a theory. A Theory of consciousness is what I had in my mind. This would just be a theory of consciousness Because that's what I was doing, but I knew from my work that consciousness was fundamental that was clear because Consciousness could do things, you know that manipulated the physical that made consciousness uh, You know more fundamental than the physical so I knew that physics should be able to be derivable from consciousness since it was a subset of consciousness so I wrote this, these books, My Big Toe, a trilogy of books, and that was basically a, a model of consciousness. And then a couple of years after I'd published those books, I had a couple of big aha moments. And those aha moments, I realized that I now knew how to derive quantum mechanics and relativity and solve all of the outstanding paradoxes in physics. So it just occurred to me that it was just a couple of things I needed to put together, and then it was, aha, there it is. So then I started uh, developing uh, a fundamental fundamental physics from first principles based on consciousness. And now you mentioned this Kickstart program. Now I have a basket full of money to go out and perform some experiments that are a result of that um, uh, that, let's say, uh, physics, deriving physics from first principles from the basic concepts of consciousness as as the root. So, in other words, consciousness derives physics, not the other way around. And I have these experiments, and if they work uh, the way I hope they will, then they will produce some very strong evidence for this being a virtual reality and for consciousness being the computer.
0: Wow. I mean, that is an incredible summary of your 40 years of work. Um, so I want to go back just a little bit. I want to pick a couple things apart because I find the, the kind of the roots of your education, let's say, in consciousness to be pretty fascinating. So when, you, when you're doing – so first of all, when you were in college – well, let me say, when I was in college, I had um, an altered states class that I had to take. Well, I didn't have to take it, but it was an elective freshman year. And I remember just even, I remember the first experience that I had after taking this class because they were trying to think, you know, they're saying like, well, think of when you're in a dream state or when you're, you know, daydreaming, all these weird non-drug induced states. And I remember the first thing that right after that class, I went to get my hair cut And as the guy was like shaving the back of my head, the, you know, the, the droning sound kind of sent me off into this kind of quasi dream state. And I remember that was like the first thing that I, that I reported on. And from that class, I became really interested in out-of-body experiences. And, you know, when you, you sound like that's kind of like a very important time to be learning the stuff and to be kind of, um, you know, there's kind of very specific points in life when the things that you do kind of stick with you forever. And college is one of those kind of experimental times, and when you said you did the transcendental meditation, you also mentioned in your book that you had to give a handkerchief and a banana that was part of and, and twenty dollars, right? So that was yeah. which added to your skepticism for the whole thing. Yes, what did you, what did you end up giving the banana and the handkerchief for? What were those? Were those just to teach you a lesson, or were they just no? Hungry?
1: That was part of the that was part of the ritual that one goes through in when one uh, gets a mantra from a, from a TM instructor. Um, TM, uh, Transcendental Meditation, came out of India, Mahesh mm, something, you know, I don't know, I can't remember his name, uh, <laughs> okay. a, a yogi, sure. you know, it's been a long time ago, you know, <laughs> a, okay. a, a, yeah. a yogi from India sure. uh, had done this, and of course, when it was done in India, it had its own rituals that were part of it, and those rituals became part of the, the initiation ceremony, so we were supposed—you were supposed to bring a gift to your teacher, and that gift could be anything. But they suggested things like bananas because, yes, indeed, they ate—they ate the bananas. It was part of their sustenance. And they probably didn't make a whole lot of money in those days, uh, which were, um, you know, in the 1960s, um, you know, doing TM. So it was probably a very marginal business, and this provided breakfast for them. Plus, it fulfilled the ritual. And uh, that the student bring a, some sort of a, a gift for the, for the teacher. Sure. That and you also
0: keep skeptics out, I guess, because I imagine some people would say, like, that's ridiculous.
1: Yeah. Well, I thought it was ridiculous, too. Right. But I didn't, wasn't going to let that get in the way. You know, I, you know, I was s- smart enough even then at the very beginning To know that I didn't know everything. And if other people surrounded things with rituals, well, that was, you know, they could do that if they wished. I didn't need to buy into it. I I just needed to pay attention to what they were telling me, you know, how to use it and then see how it worked. So if they had rituals that went with it, well, that was kind of their issue. And if that's what it took for me to, you know, gain access. And find out whether or not something was real there or not, then I had no trouble, uh, you know, bringing a banana and a handkerchief. And, you know, you kneel down and the guy who's the initiator kneels down with you and you put your banana and your handkerchief and something. And he says some words in Sanskrit and eventually he gives you a mantra. And then you take your mantra. And after that, you know, it's all up to you and your mantra. So then you go and put you put this mantra into your mind, into your attention and see what happens. That's the that's the transcendental meditation process. uses mantras. So that was the process and the little ritual. You know, because I asked the guy. I I was very put off by rituals, and uh, I asked the guy. I says you know you know, you require me to believe something here about, you know, bananas and hankies and you know, yeah. ritual and the magic, <laughs> the magic mantra and all of that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, he said, no, you don't have to believe anything. You know, it's all irrelevant. This is just, he says, this is just something I have to go through to give you this mantra. And, uh, so he was in the same box. I was, he was doing what he had to do to do his job. So I said, fine, no problem. You know, So, you know, I, Gave him my banana and my hanky. We went through the whole thing, and in uh, no part in that thing did he ask me to repeat after me or anything else. It was all his thing that he was doing, and to come up with my, um, you know, very individual mantra just for me. Now whether that was the case or not, I have no idea. If I just had to guess, I'd probably say my magic mantra was probably also given to a hundred thousand other people. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> sure. That's not something I know or didn't make any difference to me. All of that was irrelevant. You know, I had it and I started to learn how to meditate. And that led me to the being able to do, you know, to uh, find bugs in computer code, which made me more anxious than ever to go see Bob Monroe and see if this guy was a huckster or whether he was for real. So it all just, you know how it is. You start off path, and one thing leads to another, leads to another, and then there you are.
0: Yeah. Well, so you went to, um, let's talk about the, the Monroe Institute, because I have I have always wanted to go, I was really interested in this book, uh, I've, I've tried to astral project, I can't quite figure it out, uh, so how did you, how did your first experience go and like, wh- what is the experience of actually leaving your body? How, how did that kind of work, especially in a scientific setting? Cause you ended up going there and, um, basically putting in all the technology. I mean, you, and I believe a man named Dennis were really responsible for the technological experimental aspect, experiential aspects of this. Um, how did that kind of, how did that work?
1: Well, we were, Dennis and I were just interested in results. We had some interest in theory in that we wanted to know how it worked so that we could get better results. If you understand how things work, then results are a lot easier to get if you're just guessing all the time. So we were looking for theory, but had none, uh, didn't really have, you know, much to start with at all. We read what books we could on out of body and, you know, that was mostly you know, a lot of stuff that neither one of us had any credibility with. You know, we just figured those guys were making stuff up, you know, to explain it themselves. They really didn't have any idea how it worked either. And um, so we didn't find much. We did read Seth Speaks, and we got a little bit of an idea that there may be some some order uh, to to the ideas that Seth brought, although there were also some, con, you know, conflicting Things that Seth said that, that uh, we didn't get, and some things were just so airy that they were interpretations, not facts. So, we, we did what we could to come up with theory, but basically, we were just cut and try. You know, everything that, that, that we read of that we thought might affect consciousness, we tried it. And, you know, at that time, one of the big things in the uh, late 60s, early 70s was pyramids. You can make a pyramid set shape and there was something magical about the pyramid and you orient it in a particular way. And then you sit inside the pyramid, you know, you can make it with, with, uh, with cloth or with paper or with wooden poles or anything you wanted. So we'd make one, you know, and we'd orient it right. And we'd get in it and, you know, nothing happened. You know, it was one of those things It didn't, most of the stuff we tried didn't really seem to have any kind of a measurable effect. You know, Dennis and I were very skeptical So it had to have a a pretty good effect before, you know, we would uh, go on and try to study it further. On the other hand, we had been working with Bob. We were getting very, very sensitive to altered states. And we could very precisely uh, get into, get out of, and get around in altered states of consciousness. So if something was going on inside that pyramid, you know, we felt, felt we should have noticed it. So if we didn't find anything, our assumption was there was really nothing there so that's how we so we just experimented we just one day dennis found in a old scientific american an article by somebody whose last name was oster looking at binaural beats and posing the the idea that binaural beats would drive eeg in other words it would uh it would change the EEG output that's a that's an EEG is where they put all the electrodes electrodes on your head and it captures electromagnetic waves coming out of your skull and these binaural beats would actually entrain the brain waves to whatever the binaural beat was so that was just kind of a hypothesis of, of this guy Oster Dennis picked that up and you know within a week he'd made a tape and we were out at the lab at, at, uh, at Bob's of trying it out because we like I say we we're just in a cut-and-try mode and it worked it had a very positive effect on both of us so we spent the next probably two weeks optimizing it making the effect stronger and stronger and stronger by changing frequencies and the and the actual beat frequency and the base frequencies and the volume and all the things that we could do making smooth waves or square waves and different kind of waveforms and so we went through a couple of weeks of trying to uh, uh, assess the various, uh, parameters that you could change. And we got something that we thought was optimal. And uh, Bob had been away for those two weeks. Uh, he was putting on a program at Esalen, I believe, at the time, and then and hanging out with some of his friends on the West Coast for a few days. When he came back, we uh, showed it to him and uh, told him that it was, you know, first thing we'd run into that had any promise. And that was the beginning of HemiSync. So Bob took that, and the binaural beat is really the effective ingredient in the hemisync. Now, Bob had had other sounds before we got to that. He had had uh, sounds that oscillated around 4 hertz. It sounded kind of surfy, uh, sort of a surf you know, that would crash every once in a while. But it, underneath that surf was, a, was a, uh, um, a pleasant sound with a 4 hertz oscillation because he had felt a 4 hertz vibration just before he went out of body. That's why we were playing with the 4 hertz. That was one of our data points to go with. That was kind of a key thing. So that's where HemiSync came from. So that's kind of how it was at the lab. Dennis and I were just trying things to see what would work. Now, if we had something that would work, then we had something we could study. (laughs) You see? Right, right. Before before you have something to work, you know, you're just kind of loose. What are you going to do with consciousness? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So we, when we had that, then we started studying that and started being able to uh, uh, catalog these altered states and what they did and what the vibration state was. And, and uh, we started making a lot more progress uh, after we got the uh,
0: binaural beats. And so but just just to clarify, a binaural beat is basically two different frequencies in each ear oscillating back and forth, correct?
1: Yes, but you said that in a way that might be a little confusing. There's not two frequencies in each ear. There's two different frequencies. One of those frequencies goes in one ear. The other frequency goes in the other ear. And if, you know, the, the physics of acoustic waves is that if you have two sources and uh, the s- sources are just a little bit different in frequency, you will get a beat frequency that's equal to that difference. So if you had a, have 100 hertz in one ear and 104 hertz in the other ear, um, you could actually hear a beat frequency that was taking place inside your brain. So you have this, these, uh, these uh, nerves that do the acoustic, you know, that, that do your sound. And those nerves come from either side, come from either ear, and they get to the brain. And the membrane at the center of the brain is called the corpus callosum. And somewhere, probably in the corpus callosum, those two signals met. So inside the brain you were generating beat frequencies and that beat frequency generated in the brain was then driving EEG in other words that if you had 100 and 104 then your beat frequency would be 4 hertz and you would find more of the energy of the EEG output accumulating in around 4 hertz so that's what that's what all that means and if anybody wants to go play with binaural beats there are several sites on the on the internet that will let you design your own for free. So um, one of them is a site called G-N-A-U-R-A-L, G-NARL. You know, NARL, arl, meaning sound. So where the G came from, I'm not sure, but uh, I pronounce it g just so people won't miss the G. And it's, it's G-NARL.com, uh, I think. And if you go there, then you will be able to make any kind of binaural beats you wish with their software. And it's very accurate and fairly easy to work with. It's one of those things you fool with it for about two hours and then you and then you get it.
0: And <laughs> then you figure it out. Yeah. And so you guys were playing with that four, so you, the four hertz difference between the two um, signals, right. correct? And right. So why, why that was so important? Because Robert Monroe was able. That was what he felt before he went out of body. Can you explain that a little bit?
1: Yes. Actually, that's what most everybody feels. It's not just Robert Monroe. That's a common. It's a common thing, and that that four Hertz oscillation is not just within consciousness. You experience it in consciousness. And sometimes it's a very strong oscillation. Sometimes you feel like, you know, like a flag uh, in a strong wind, you know, that the the vibration is, is very powerful. Sometimes it comes with electric shocks and sounds and other things, but these, this vibration state, as it's called, is pretty common in most beginners and most people who, are initially uh, having out-of-body experiences. And it's also a physical thing because in the lab, we would put uh, one of the sensors we put on people besides an EEG was a galvanic skin response. And it just measures the resistivity between two points on the body. So you would put one on your right finger and one on the left finger and it just measure the electrical resistance through your body between those two fingers. And the galvanic sting response would also vibrate at four hertz. So the um, you know the, the amount of ions in the system that makes it more conductive uh, and so on were changing. We're actually oscillating at four hertz. So <clears throat> there's a physical thing going on as well as a consciousness thing going on at four hertz. And we kind of tried to understand that better best I could come up with, I was the theory guy because I'm the physicist, you know, Dennis was more the equipment guy because he was the double E. He was the engineer. Best I could come up with is when you get to the point where you let go of the physical world, you no longer have any input data going to your senses, right? So, and when you don't have any input data going to your senses, your senses start searching for data. They don't have any data. So they crank up the gain a little and say, well, you know, where's the signal? And that doesn't work. So they crank down the gain a little and they're, they're basically searching for the data because they don't know what to do without data. If if your senses aren't getting any data, they are, uh, I don't know, what can we say? They're kind of hunting, they're in hunting mode and that that hunting takes place at about four Hertz. So that's my idea of what the physical cause was. So what that so what that says that when you get to about four hertz and you let go, I mean, when you're when you are at that uh, place at the theta state, which is a four hertz, you're at a place where you're no longer really connected to your physical input. That's the whole point of that. If you go one step lower in the EG, which is down to delta, you're unconscious. Okay? That's you lose consciousness altogether. We say you're asleep, not really sleep. You just lose consciousness. So this theta is right up on the border of consciousness or not conscious, you know, right on that border. And when that happens, that's where you let go of your physical data. And when you do physically, I think you find all of your, all of your nerve endings basically go into the hunting mode, looking for a signal that isn't there. Uh, that's what, what we were reading on the, on the uh, GSR, galvanic skin response readers, I believe. But that is also the point where you're no longer connected to this reality. And when you're no longer connected to this reality through your sense data, you're no longer here, right? That's what, that's what makes you here, is that you are collecting sense data. When you don't collect sense, sense data, you're not here any longer. Well, where are you? Well, you're in some other reality frame. See, you're out of body. You're not in your body. Now out of body is a really bad term. You're you never in your body to begin with. You don't exist in your body. You're not a thing that lives. You're not a spirit that lives in your body. Okay? You are consciousness. You are non-physical consciousness is a non-physical thing. You never were in your body in the first place. All you're doing is becoming aware that you are consciousness and aware as consciousness. So you as conscious are becoming aware, aware outside of the, the uh, five senses, and that's what they call—that's what we call—an out-of-body state. So, if you just want to feel that vibration state, sometimes just hang out in that hypnagogic region between the, falling,
0: a, wait, falling wait, region? asleep. The hypnagogic—is that what it's called? It's called a
1: hypnagogic region. Yeah, okay. that's what it's called, and that's a state right before you fall asleep.
0: Uh huh.
1: Hang out right on that border. In other words, get really, really close to giving it up to being asleep and being unconscious, but not quite. That's called a hypnagogic state. You'll begin to see things. Images will flash. You'll get uh, sometimes pictures. You'll get feelings, and if you pay attention, you'll also start to feel a four hertz pulsing there at that hypnagogic level. So, yeah, that's a hypnagogic, a cool word, but I didn't cool. make I didn't make it up. It's a yeah, Aww. it's a term. It's a term uh, that uh, biologists and psychologists and people use to define that boundary between being awake and being unconscious.
0: So as a pioneer in this field, do you, have you found yourself making up a lot of words? Are there any Tom Campbell originals out there?
1: <laughs> There's lots of them. When I, did, <laughs> when I wrote my books, I didn't want to get encumbered or entangled with a lot of the other uh, ideas about consciousness, you know, like if you go at the, the out of body world, there's like Carrington and Muldoon and Fox. And, you know, these are all back generally in the early 1900s, late 1800s. And, you know, they, they had, uh, you know, astral body, you know, that was one of their, that's one of their terms. And then you get the Hindu terms, which you have the, you know, the astral and the mental, and you, you have the, the seven chakras and each one is a different space with a different name and you get all of this, this um, stuff that was in the literature, and I didn't want to be connected with any of that. So I didn't want anybody to, to hear what I was saying and say, oh, yeah, that's that theosophy idea or something, because my ideas were really different than that. So I tended not to use those words. So instead of talking about an incarnation, I talk about an experience packet. You see,
0: just experience that. packet.
1: Yeah, an right. experience packet. Right. So you know the idea is very similar, uh-huh. but it removes me from um, Eastern theology mm-hmm. and makes people, as they read it, just evaluate the idea for what it is, rather than try to connect it to some other, you know, set of things by which they may be positively or negatively, you know, you know, disposed. Right. That makes sense. So, So that's what I wanted to, to, uh, keep away from. So yes, I made up a whole lot of things like that in my model, just so people could look at it, um, uh, you know, without, uh, being either urged forward or backward because of the associations they had with the words. And I think, I think it makes it easier for people to deal with the concepts just as they're presented as opposed to tripping over, uh, other people's metaphors and other people's, uh, uh, rituals and dogma and you know all the stuff that goes with with his other with his other stuff, so I, so I made up a whole lot of things like that.
0: We yeah. also love acronyms too, because in there, there's I mean, it's just like almost like the military. There's it's like alphabet <laughs> soup. But like, I had to go back to the beginning a few times to see what to, what H L T M Q U meant and I had to go back and <laughs> figure it out. Yes, because yeah, there's lots I, of stuff. Because you got to keep referring to these long concepts so many times.
1: Yeah, and uh, the the reason for an acronym is is it has in it the uh, the name you know right. all the words all, it, it carries its it's like you know a, a turtle carrying its shell on its back an acronym <laughs> yeah, carries right. it carries its definition on its back sure because if you know what the letters are what they stand for in the acronym well those letters actually spell out the meaning of the word so it's kind of handy that way but probably the reason I use them so much is because I do come from many years inside a DOD you know, doing, doing work there. And DOD is a wash in acronyms as is the, as is the entire government. So I just got used to thinking in those terms. But if you, if you did read the book, you realize that somewhere after probably 10 or 20 pages past, when I started using a lot of acronyms, I, I, uh, caution people, you know, don't worry too much about these acronyms. If you can't remember them, you know, cause an acronym is like Teflon coated, you know, um, Piece of verbiage very hard for people to remember acronyms. It's the way our brain works. Our brain work can remember Fred, but it can't remember you know an, an AUM. That's that's just because Fred has context to them, and AUM has no context. And and your brain files and sorts by context. And if it doesn't have any context, then it's like I say, it's like Teflon coated to your brain. It just slips right through, and your brain can't remember it. But if you I tell people, don't worry about the acronym, what the letters mean or anything. Just get a sense of, you know, use AOM just like Fred, you know, make, make it in your mind of, of what it is and, and work with it that way, and which made it then easier for people who were trying to remember acronyms and just couldn't do it. Because unless you've been a government employee, it's hard to remember right. acronyms.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a standard policy. Um, almost required learning and, and government. Uh, one of the things that when I was reading Journeys Out of the Body, one of the things that almost made it fantastical in a way, which which kind of separated me from believing it wholeheartedly, was a I could never really I could never get out of body, so that of course I'm not going to believe that way if I can't figure it out. But also the stories. That Robert Monroe would talk about encountering other entities in this other world, and the very it, you know, it was almost like it felt like traveling to an entirely different dimension or world, which made it seem more like more akin to Harry Potter than Albert Einstein. You know, yeah. Um, so, uh, coming from a physics background, you're clearly a uh, renowned scientist. So, I'm gonna believe what you say. So, don't trick me here.
1: Uh, <laughs> w-
0: w- did, were those things possible? Were you in- encountering other entities? Um, w- was it like going to another world? Or was it more like in, like exploring our world, uh, you know, as a ghost, for lack of a better term?
1: Um, well, both of those are wrong. Um, <laughs> neither one it. of ne- neither one of those are right. OK, you have to understand the way, you know, the way our reality works is that we receive information and we interpret that information to be something. And that something we interpret the information to be is our reality. That's where reality comes from. It's your interpretation of the data you get. Now, that's how it works in this world. That's not just in the, you know, in a non-physical sense. That's just the way it works. Somebody says something to you and you have, you get the words, that's the data. And you take those words and you interpret them and what you interpret them to be in your mind, that's what they are. That's your reality. You see now your interpretation may be wrong. So a person can have one thing in their mind, they have to uh, take their thought, convert it into data, which is words, send the data to you, the words, and you re- you reinterpret that based on your own experience, on your own fear, on your own, uh, you know, knowledge, on your own ignorance, you know, whatever it is that, that make you what you are, that's what you interpret it according to. So... We all live in our own reality because we have to interpret. Well, Bob went out and he got this information and he interpreted it the best way he knew to how. And the way we interpret is we pattern match. We get data and we take that data and we try to match it to something in our experience. And if we can get even a half hearted match, that's it. We will then interpret it as that. That's the way our brains work. That's the way our minds work. So we interpret by pattern match. So he got information and he interpreted it to be the things that he wrote about in his book. Oh, I got to this level and this is what I saw and so on. Well, that was his interpretation of the data in terms of what he knew, what his background was, what his uh, knowledge and experience and things he had read and things he believed. All of that goes into interpreting it. So that's his own personal viewpoint that's not necessarily what's there so bob had the idea that what you see is what's there and it's not really like that what you see is your interpretation of the data you get there's really nothing there it's all just information so you get a data stream you interpret that data as this reality then you let that data stream go by getting to that uh, point where you have the four hertz vibration and you let all that sense data go, now you get another data stream and you start interpreting that data, but you call that what you see, hear, smell, and touch in in out-of-body state. It's another data stream. So data, data can come from three different places. Data stream comes from the larger consciousness system. And it can send you data stream in several ways. It's Part of it is, like, is let's say, uh, in my book, I call it the big computer. That's just the part of the larger consciousness system that acts as the server for this virtual reality that we live in, called the physical universe. But it, the larger consciousness kind of system can also send you data and other routes as well. The second source is from some other individuated unit of consciousness, because all consciousness is netted. And the third source is from yourself. You are a piece of consciousness, therefore you can create information and data. And none of, none of those three sources come with tags on them that says, oh, this is from the LCS, and this is from your imagination, and this is from some other IUOC. You never know where it comes from. You just get information, and you interpret it. So what Bob saw was an information, was a, was a, what he got was an information data stream. And he interpreted it to be those places and those things and those beings that he reported about. That was his interpretation. And it was his best pattern match. Bob was pretty good. He was excellent at uh, at not embellishing. He was very good at at trying to uh, just relay what he got and not at trying to add anything to it. But he was limited by his own Database. He was limited by his, his own experience base, and to him, all of that stuff was real. Yes, it was just like uh, going to Chicago, right? When you go to Chicago, here's the things you're going to see, and when you go to to a place that Bob went, you're going to see those same things because that's what's there in that place. Not so. There are no places. You see, there are no places. Uh, there's only data and information. And why did Bob get the data? He got in his data stream because the system was giving him information that would help him understand the bigger picture. It was giving him information that would give him insight into the nature of reality. And he made his own interpretations and he wrote it down in his journal and that's what is in his book. So you cannot have Bob Monroe's experience. That's just Bob Monroe's experience. Unless you're Bob Monroe, you're not going to have Bob Monroe's experience. So that's, that's kind of the way of, of looking at that. So it's not, you know, it's not like Bob said in that, okay, here's Bob's park. And he had this nice little place he went to with green grass and big trees and it was shady. And that was his place to go just for cogitation and relaxation. It was just a nice place to hang out. Well, now there's all kinds of people who want to go to Bob's park. Well, there is no Bob's park. That was just Bob's idea of a place to relax. Somebody else's idea of a place to relax might be sitting in a rowboat in the middle of a lake. Somebody else might be on top of a high mountain, you know, looking out, you know, at the at the valley below. So we all have our own idea of what a nice relaxing spot would be. And that was what Bob turned into his part, because that's uh, that was his idea of this relaxing place. But now once he writes it down, other people can think about it. And they can say, I want to go to Bob's Park. And Bob's Park is a shady place with big trees and, you know, nice uh, manicured lawns and lovely and peaceful. And they can conjure the same thing. If that's their intent, then they will end up getting that data. Remember, the third source of data is they create it themselves. So you can go visit Bob's Park, but it's not because Bob's Park is a place that actually exists. It's because that's the data you're looking for. You're coming into the situation with a with a, an expectation and with a, an intent to see a very specific thing, and sure enough, that's what you're going to see if that is you know if that's what you want. So you get to create your reality for most parts in this non physical space. So no, there is no place. Um, um, <laughs> That's why I tell people you have to be skeptical of everything, right? Everything you must be skeptical of because you never know where it's coming from, what the source is or what the point of the source is.
0: Well, even in your book, you mentioned non-physical entities, right? So, yes. So what would the, what is that then in a general terms that anyone could, I mean, I know you're going to put your own paint on it, but I mean, like, how does that exist?
1: Well, what exists is that the system will give you in data and this data can be like, uh, you know, it, you go into your pattern match and say, well, it's sort of like a rock. It's just the thing. It takes up space and, you know, you have to walk around it and you can't go through it. So you imagine it like a like a rock, a barrier of some sort. You could make a wall, you could make a rock, you know, you could make a, a a wooden fence. You could make it into all kinds of things in your interpretation. But that's a barrier. Now if the system talks to you and says, Well, hello Dan I've got some information for you and uh, I'd like to, you know, exchange some data and what you're getting now, the data stream you're getting now is about this, this, and the other. So something actually seems to interact with you, talks to you, gives you information, something that you can then give information back and get an exchange. You can get a conversation going. Well, when that happens, how do you interpret that? You interpret it as a being. A being is just something that will talk to you. If it doesn't talk to you, it's not a being so when you get data in a data stream that is conversational then that's a being you just define it as that because in our minds in our in our you know in our experience our experience base that's going to do the interpretations things that talk to us are beings now you can dress them any way you like if you have uh, a very vivid imagination you know you can, you can dress them up in a three-piece suit. You know, you, you can say they have bone buttons and, you know, uh, uh, you can even maybe say, well, the plaid is a, you know, is, is a McCullough plaid or something. But mostly if you're not that much into the details, you just put them in a robe. That way you don't have to describe anything much and you just see kind of a humanoid outline and that's good enough. So, you can dress them any way you want because there's not really something there that has a particular look or appearance. That's something that you create. So, when somebody goes to see their guide and it's the angel Gabriel, and you know, he's got golden wings and the rest of it, that's what they bring to the data. They're adding that to it because that's how they interpret it. It doesn't mean that there's some golden-winged angel out there hanging around this person right
0: See? well yeah, you no, know, that, that that makes sense and i would say, and i'm going to change this just or actually i'm going to ask you if this is an appropriate change because you said anything that would talk to you would be a being but couldn't it just be interacting in general so not necessarily conversing but anyone that's trying to communicate with you would then be considered we would make that into a being of some kind
1: yeah we tend to do that if yeah. you know if we want you know if we need to So let's say I send you a message telepathically, all consciousness is connected. If I send you that message, you may just get the message and think that it is your own intuition. Hmm. Oh, I, ha- I had a thought this afternoon uh, about checking on such and such. And you would think that it was your own intuition even though it was my message that you received. So in that case, you don't make a bean out of it. Uh, I see. But, uh, you see, but yeah, yeah. if I talk to you and I say, Hey, Dan, you know, da 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 And then we have this conversation back and forth. Now it's a being.
0: Now you're the being Thomas Campbell.
1: It may not be Thomas Campbell. You know, you may imagine it as something else. You may imagine it as your fairy godmother. (laughs) It's hard hard to say what you're going to interpret it as. You can interpret it as anything. But uh, that then becomes a being. So it doesn't have to. You can just pick up information and uh, deal with it or accept it. And eventually, as you mature through this, That's what you do most of the time. You stop doing all the turning turning things into what's in your own database. You just accept things at kind of base value. All right. It's just a communication and you don't worry with, you know, and what did the person look like, you know, and what job do they have? And, uh, you know, what sort of degree do they have that makes them an expert on this subject? And you just let all that go and you just take the, you know, you just take the incoming data and deal with it without having to do all the things that humans normally do when they meet somebody. So eventually you outgrow the need for that. And then it kind of goes away, just like you outgrow the need for the, for the pulsation state. You go through it so quickly that it doesn't actually exist anymore. You never, you don't feel it. You don't have to. It's just like going out of body. Uh, First time I went out of body, you know, Bob had us in the, in the lab and it probably was a, was a 30 minute process. And now, you know, going out of body is maybe a 30 millisecond process. You know, it's, it's uh, down, you know, too small to even imagine you, you can, I mean to measure, you just change your focus. It's just that simple. You just change your focus to a different, different data stream. You let this data stream go, you pick up some other data stream, and then eventually you learn how to parallel process multiple data streams, And then you just don't live in the same reality anymore. You live in a bigger reality, that has multiple data streams going on all the time. And it's just, you know, as you progress through this, things change and you start to look at it in a more economical uh, way. You don't go through all the steps that are unnecessary, like, you know, giving them faces and and dressing them in clothes. Well, you have to dress them in a clothes, right? If you're going to look at them, otherwise you'd be looking at this naked being and that wouldn't be nice. So we, we take all of our, our, you know, our fears and all of the social structures and all of that junk comes with us as we, as we, uh, uh you know, make up stories about what it is we, we see.
0: Well, I do want to go on record as saying you're starting to sound like a robot from the future. I just want to tell you that (laughs) because it's all data streamed and it's all, you know, especially as we get into the virtual reality simulation. I'm starting to think that, but it's quite possible we're all robots from the future or from the past. Um, so one thing I want to put a, I just want to put a button on this story because I think, you know, all that stuff makes a lot of sense. But what's interesting is the first time, if, I, if I'm correct, the first time where you realized that this was kind of a shared experience is you and Dennis went on, um, like a parallel concurrent, um, out of body experience and you guys both experienced similar things, correct?
1: Yes, that was, uh, you know, there's a big difference between knowing that something is real or actual and actually getting it or knowing it at a deep level. You know, you can know it intellectually long before you know it intuitively. So with Dennis and I, we're both technical guys, right? The physicist and a, and a double E and we're very hard to convince that anything is real. We have to experience it and we experienced it. All right. We did lots and lots of remote viewing and healing and all the things that, that uh, one can do to convince themselves that this is correct. And we kept track of basically our statistics of, you know, when we were right and wrong and so forth. And it was, it was like one to, you know, 10,000 that we were getting information just by being good guessers, you know, that, uh, we were coming up with the things we came up with just by luck. So the, the intellectually, we knew there was something real going on. Science said, when you do the math, that it was statistically, you know, viable. It was statistically significant is the technical term. So that what we were getting couldn't have just been good luck. We're just fantastic guessers. And that's why we were able to read numbers that were written on blackboards, you know, um, that we couldn't see. That sort of thing. Oh, we're just really good guessers. We can read a a 12-digit number. You have to be a really good guesser to do that. And so we knew that, that uh, we weren't just guessing. Something real was going on. We didn't know what or how or why, but we knew it was real. But that is all intellectual. And we got there probably in the first six months to a year of being with Bob. And you know, we did this with Bob for five, six, seven, eight, almost a decade. So anyhow, so we got there. But that's a far cry from actually knowing it deep down at a gut level. And that happened for me when Dennis and I was an experiment Bob thought up. He said, you two go out of body, drift up above the lab and meet there and then just stay together. Go do an out of body adventure, go someplace or whatever. Doesn't matter where, just stay together. So stay focused on, um, that so we did we went up we got went out of body it was easy for dennis and i And then we drifted up to the you know through the roof up above the lab met up with each other connected and we spent the next two hours talking to entities uh seeing things describing things having an adventure in the out of body and we were isolated acoustically from each other actually there was there was a, an empty Isolated acoustic booth between us, and we were each in acoustically isolated booths ourselves. And we had a little mic down over our mouth that we would whisper into. So even if one of us screamed, the other one would only have heard it as a barely, you know, muffled grunt or something. It wouldn't have, the sound was really dead between us. So we went on this thing, and Bob required, uh, Bob recorded everything separately. He would talk to us occasionally. And ask us what we were doing and, and, you know, what was going on, you know, describe where you are. He would do this anyway. That was the way he taught us to go out of body with us talking to him all the time. Because otherwise he couldn't guide us if he didn't know what we, you know, what we were doing. So we both were used to that. So we come back out of this thing two hours later. We stumble down to the control room where Bob is. And he plays both of these tapes, the tape of Dennis talking and the tape of me talking at the same time. So he flips both. He rewinds them both, turns them on to play both at the same time. And as they play out, Dennis and I are having conversations. I'd ask Dennis something and he would answer and he'd ask me things and I would answer and we'd see things. Oh, look at that thing over there. You see that thing looks like a tower. And he'd go, yeah, you mean the one that's that's, uh, black with the red stripes? And I'd say, yeah, that's the one. And, you know, we would just talk about things. And it went on for, like I say, about two hours. And my jaw dropped because there was no other way that this could be explained other than exactly what it was. We were together having the same experience in an out-of-body state. The only other possibility was one of us was just lying there picking up the... Um, telepathically from the other. But then that couldn't be true either because we were having conversations. Sometimes I'd see the, you know, the thing first and then he'd look at it and see it. And sometimes he would. So we were both equally engaged in it. So there was no other possibility other than it was real, just like it appeared to be. And that got it to me from my intellect down into my intuition, you know, at at a fundamental level and I no longer, after that, was interested in asking the question, is it real? For me, that was the end of that answer. I had, known for, I had known for probably years that it was real scientifically, that it was real statistically, that it was real intellectually. But that's different than actually having the experience that you know it's just real. You no longer have to ask the question. <clears throat> so for me, that was a turning point. For Dennis, that wasn't really such a big turning point. You have to understand that Dennis and I did things that were totally strange, totally abnormal and weird every night at Bob's place. I mean, it's not like we came there and only once a month did something happen. Every single night, we'd go through dozens of things that were completely off the wall, completely contrary to uh, um, you know a materialist view, and our life you know, weirdness had become normal. So with Dennis, that one was, oh yeah, sure. I I expected it to be that way. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a big thing for him, but uh, something happened to him later. Uh, I think some months later that also kind of hit him in the, in the gut like that hit me. It, he no longer uh, asked if it was real either. So yeah, that was a big event for me and it changed my attitude, in as much as I wasn't trying to convince myself that it was real anymore, I was just trying to figure out, how does this thing work? What is it? What are we doing here? What are we really experiencing? And trying to manipulate the variables in such a way that I could narrow down the possibilities of what it could be.
0: Well, I mean, so that, that is a perfect ending point because it, it represents the absolute foundation in consciousness that you had the turning point for you. Um, and you're going to stick around. We're going to tie this into your virtual reality simulation. The world that we live in uh, could be a virtual reality simulation. Uh, we're going to tie that in uh, with a, a bonus episode. Um, but how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about this?
1: Well, if they want to learn more, probably where they'll find most of the information is on my YouTube site. On my YouTube site. And you can just Google Thomas Campbell or Google My Big Toe. And the YouTube site will come up, so you don't have to try too hard to find that. And on that YouTube site, I have, oh, uh, I don't know, in excess of 500 videos. And most of those videos are longer than what you're going to want to watch. You know, most of them are like an hour, hour and a half long. Some of them even, even longer. But there's lots. There's literally thousands of hours of me talking about the subject, lecturing, talking about all sorts of specific questions thousands of hours of me answering people's questions so if you have questions there's a almost a 99% probability that I've already answered it four or five times uh, in in various you know in, in various sessions that, that you can find it on YouTube the problem there is is finding the you know the needle you want in the haystack of information that's there and I can't help you too much with that yet one day we would like to sort all of that by subject but that's just a hum- humongous undertaking takes a lot of man hours and we haven't uh, gotten to that yet. So you'll just have to try to work that out. The ones I'd tell you to go to first would be uh, kind of the one over the world uh, talks about all of uh, you know, of everything. It's not specific to any point, but it covers all the main points. And that would be um, uh, one of the best ones would be a, a talk I gave in Marseille, France, a couple of years ago, but if you just get to my YouTube site and put in Marseille, that'll come up. Another one would be a uh, similar workshop that I did in Calgary, and that was back in 2011. So it's not as current as the one in Marseille. And if you watch those, you'll get a good overview. The second thing you can do is read the trilogy, the books, and those are free on Google books. They've always been free on Google books. When I first published them, I put them on Google Books, and I told Google that allow 100% visibility. So you can go there. Of course, there you have to sit at your computer and read it, and it's the first version. It's the very first printing is what you get. And we're on like the sixth printing now, and every time it reprints, you know, I change an error or two or add something or subtract something. Not a big difference, but uh, a significant difference. So other than that, you can buy them the usual places like Amazon and bookstores and and so on. So that's the the books and the videos are the two big things. I have a website, uh, www.mybigtoe.com. You can go there, which will also let you jump from there to the YouTube site. If you want, it gives you a little bit more information on me. If you want to hear about my background and how all this got started, that's basically the first section of the first book.
0: Right and i i recommend it highly it's an, it's a, it's a great story uh, i loved reading it and i'll have links to all this stuff on the webpage um oh one
1: thing i forgot to tell you and that is if you want to know where i'm going to be on my schedule cuz i give talks places uh, i move all around the world and uh, go to uh, mbt events my big toe dot events.com and there you will be able to find out uh, You know, where I might be in a neighborhood close to you, perhaps sometime or the programs I do. You know, I do programs helping people uh, get out of uh, this reality and into the larger reality. I do a series of those programs and you can if you're interested in doing that, you can join one of those.
0: Thomas Campbell, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, I know this is a pretty heavy episode, but if you want to learn more about our guests or listen to previous episodes, go to fascinatingnouns.com to check out all of that, as well as following the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can also find a little form to sign up for the newsletter, which I assure you is incredible, and that only tells you about Back background to the fascinating nouns guests but also the other projects that I'm doing including my latest podcast which is fascinating gadgets gizmos and gear based technologies or I take a piece of pop culture fictional technology and explain how to make it in real life with a team of experts including friend of the show. Uh, and, and physics phenom and certified genius as well Dr. Michael Denon as well as others um, including the Everlasting Gobstopper, some things we talk about the T-1000, Frankenstein's Monster it's a really fun show you can check that website as well as FGGBT.com and if you like that show and you like Fascinating Nouns, you like my other projects, you can find all of them on DanielJGlenn.com check it out and thank you for listening. And of transmission.